There's rarely right or wrong in leadership. There's just our approach and worldview. I assert that building culture, leading with relationships and empathy is the way to create lasting change. Others use power and evaluation for quick wins. Some say small incremental changes lead to long-lasting big change. Others say do as much as you can right now because there's no time to lose. Again, no right or wrong, just the way you approach it. What matters is that you know who you are. You understand your core principles and you don't waver from them. And that's exactly how today's guest led as a principle. David Brazer was clear about his values and stuck to them, even when it could cost him his job. He also built from the bottom up, utilizing teacher voice in the process of creating meaningful change. And that's where we'll start today's conversation. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. It's basically like a Fitbit for teachers, helping them be mindful of teacher talk versus student talk. Get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. If you're waiting for your district to develop you, don't hold your breath. What would you be able to accomplish if you poured jet fuel on your leadership development? Rob, a principal in North Carolina, had this to say about his mastermind experience. I have found myself trying more things because I know that I have the support from other amazing school leaders to help guide me through if I get stuck. Turn your dreams into reality and level up your leadership. Apply to the mastermind today at betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash mastermind. Hey, Ruckus Maker, I'm here with S. David Brazer, PhD from Stanford University, who is currently a Director of Professional Learning at TeachFX, formerly Associate Professor and Director of Leadership Degree Programs in the Stanford GSE. Brazer continues to design courses and teach in the Stanford Ed Leaders Online Professional Development Program for Educators. Author of numerous peer-reviewed articles, his latest book is Leading Schools to Learn, Grow, and Thrive. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. It's really a pleasure to be here. So your approach wasn't to get a job and to break things. You were about holding on to values and making incremental change. One way you did this was through the science curriculum. And can you share that story? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, when I was a principal at a high school on the San Francisco Peninsula, we had a science curriculum that uh, had basically two tracks. There was the regular college track and there was the honors track. And the honors courses I found pretty disturbing because they really just moved faster instead of being deeper. So starting actually in the years as assistant principal and continuing into my principalship, I worked on 
eliminating the honors courses and creating advanced placement courses that were truly different from quote unquote regular because they were based on the national advanced placement curriculum and they provided a challenge that was actually tested at the end of the year. This was a way to provide extra challenge and excellence for students. And at the same time, by reducing the number of variations in courses, we were able to put more resources into the courses that were non-college track, but were intended to lead toward being eligible to take college preparatory courses. Right. And how do parents respond to that? Because when you take a, a track away, especially one that's labeled honors, I'm sure they were thrilled. There was a lot of pushback and it went on for several years. We had an organized parent advocacy group that brought the science department chair and me in front of them every year to answer the question, why did you take away our honors classes? And we explained that what we were trying to do is to create meaningful opportunities for all students, both the students at an advanced level and the students who came into high school struggling in their science and math capabilities. That became, it was a pretty much continual uh, problem or stress point for us because there were parents who felt that their kids wanted something more challenging, but they weren't really ready to do, let's say, advanced placement physics. Um, And there's a pretty good argument there. The problem is that what they really wanted was the sorting that happened in the honors classes. Those classes were predominantly white and Asian. Um, and our other classes at the lower end were predominantly Latino. And it was important to me that we eliminate mere sorting mechanisms in the name of providing educational excellence for everyone. So we resisted and ultimately won out. And and would you say that's one of those examples where you hold on to uh, those values to, to push you through those hard times? Absolutely. I mean, my intent was that we would create opportunity rather than cut off opportunity. And I recognize that that's an issue both at the advanced academic end and also at the other end where students are not as well prepared to uh, succeed in high school work. Those are hard arguments for school leaders to make because uh, everybody's fighting for scarce resources and parents want the best opportunities for their kids as they see them. But I think it's incumbent upon educators to push for equity and excellence at the same time and to recognize what your courses are, what your curriculum is, um, and be able to make those kinds of changes. And and to reflect back to you, if I heard you correctly, by eliminating this honors track, which was really a sorting mechanism, having the AP more uh, really actual rigorous course and then your regular course, you were able to provide more resources for the quote-unquote regular uh, course as well. Yes, because we weren't teaching as many variations of the same course. And so that helped the preparation load for the individual teachers. I just wanted to make one other point. The honors class was a, as I said, a faster, let's say, chemistry class. But chemistry advanced placement is a different course. It's a college-level curriculum taught in a high school setting and helps students develop a deeper interest in chemistry as opposed to just moving faster with more homogenous class grouping. Right. Well, in my leadership community, uh, the mastermind, I love to read. I'm reading all the time, but I also love to go deep with the books and make sure I apply what I learned. And I saw that for a number of the members, they were keeping up. And uh, since this is my, my full-time gig, of course, I had full focus on that. I wasn't leading a school anymore at the same time. Uh, so for the for the majority of leaders who were uh, struggling with that and worse, 
not implementing the ideas that we were, were reading about and discussing, I decided to read fewer books so we could go deeper. And I think that's that's exactly what you're talking about. Instead of speed and covering content, like what's the award you win for that? It's about actual deep and meaningful and rich learning experiences. Um, and, and you could provide that through a course like EP Chemistry. I agree completely. So, you know, talking about college prep, you said something there in the intro call that, that really uh, had me cracking up. And you, you called some, some uh, programs pretend college prep. And I'm wondering if you don't mind go, going into that a little bit. Sure. Uh, that was something of an obsession for me as a high school administrator, and particularly as a principal. What I meant by pretend college prep is that what's happened to the curricula in uh, high schools around the U.S. is that for some good reasons, we've tried to eliminate non-college prep courses. They typically don't lead anywhere, and they're often not very good, and the weakest teachers tend to get assigned there. So there's some good reasons for trying to upgrade the curriculum by making a college prep. The problem with that is that there are students who just don't have the skills and or motivation to really succeed in a truly college preparatory curriculum. So they'll move through high school, passing courses, earning a lot of C's and D's, and they graduate virtually ineligible to attend a four-year college. But we say that they've completed a college preparatory curriculum. The serious side of this pretend college prep problem is that a student who graduates with a diploma earning C's and D's in college preparatory courses has nothing once he or she graduates from high school. They'll typically move on to community college, or that was typical in the schools I worked in. And the community college persistence rate is terrible because for students like that, they're seeing the same courses they didn't do well in in high school, and they get easily discouraged. So we tried to work against that problem by providing uh, meaningful courses that were not intended to be college preparatory. They were intended to be workplace preparatory. And our two signature programs were the automotive technology program and culinary arts program. Yeah, and both of those sound uh, uh, fantastic. And I'm curious what it looked like in a real world scenario, uh, given those experiences to your students. Well, first of all, those two courses, uh, there were course sequences, actually, were taught by people who had experience in the field. So the automotive technology teacher had worked in the um, automotive service industry for quite a number of years. And likewise, the culinary arts teacher had been a chef in various restaurants. That was a great way to start. But the classes were intended to, they had a very specific focus. They were intended to prepare students with entry-level job skills once they completed the course sequence. And what we did was we tied job placement with those entry-level job skills. So in the culinary arts program, we had students placed in restaurants essentially working as interns while they were working through the course. They got paid uh, for their part-time work, and they were learning skills that were reinforced in the classroom. Similarly, in automotive technology, some of those students were placed in entry-level jobs as after-school work. Most had to wait until they were certified for uh, work such as you know, replacing tires and replacing batteries and doing those uh, entry-level kinds of service jobs in automotive, changing oil. So we emphasized get a skill, get a job, and then also move on. So we had connections to local post-secondary schools. There was a culinary arts academy, unfortunately no longer exists, but there was a culinary arts academy in San Francisco that our students often went on to after they graduated from high school. And close by, there was a community college with 
the nation's top-rated automotive services program that many of our graduates were interested in. And I'm very proud of those programs because they helped kids who were typically low-income get skills that they could apply right away, start earning money, and continue to support themselves as they went through post-secondary education. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And that culinary arts uh, school may not exist anymore where you were sending kids, but you did something that many leaders want to achieve, but few actually do. Uh, Many of the things that you built uh, or had a hand in building while you were a school leader still run to this day. And uh, I'd love for you to tell the ruckus maker who's listening, how did you build a, a program and a system so that it sustained after you left? Well, <laughs> that's a little hard to, to know for sure. I think it begins with really fighting for what you believe in. There were moments when those programs were in danger of being cut, particularly because we were going through major school renovation and new construction during my years as principal. And our construction manager essentially wrote the automotive shop out of the plans at one point. And I had to get angry in meetings and say, you can't do that. This is a vital program for us. So I think that's an example of being an advocate for what you believe in and really, in some ways, putting your career on the line. People didn't like having me in meetings. um, And I worked at the pleasure of the superintendent. So there were risks in that. But I think as far as sustaining it after I left, my approach was to empower teacher leadership because it was clear they were going to be there long after I left. And if if they didn't own the programs, if they weren't committed to those programs that we worked on from the introductory level science courses to AP courses to school to work programs, they weren't going to survive past my advocacy. So in the last 20 years since I left the principalship, my teacher advocates have remained and they've sustained many of the programs we started in the 1990s. Yeah, I remember uh, joining faculties as a novice teacher and, and, and veteran teachers telling new principals, you know, we were here before you, we're going to be here after you, you know, and that's just uh, them asserting a little bit, I guess, of their, their positional influence and power that they have, but they're not mistaken, right? And, and they do... Principals that understand that it's the teachers who carry out the vision, right, and bring them to the table to uh, help craft it and make it a reality, they have the longer-term success, right? I think some people use fear and manipulation and power and evaluation and stuff maybe for some quick wins, but that never never lasts. Uh, Your recounting your experience just reminds me of a quick story I have to tell you. Yeah. That um, my first year as principal, I was headed toward the teacher's lounge for some reason. And a woman who had been teaching English there probably since I was in elementary school came up to me and she said, you know, David, you're my ninth principal. Okay. I just looked at her and I said, no, okay. (laughs) Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. I hope uh, number nine is your favorite number. So cool. Yeah. Ninth principle. All right. Well, uh, David, you know, I'm enjoying this conversation, but we're going to pause here for a moment for a message from our sponsors. And when we get back, I'd love to talk a bit about how you helped kids feel welcome at your school and then also talk about your work at TeachFX. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, 
Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose virtual PD is equipping thousands of teachers with the skills they need to create engaging, equitable, and rigorous virtual or blended classes. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All right, and we're back with David Brazer. And let's talk about helping kids feel welcome at school because you believe that teachers need to work with the effective and cognitive sides of kids that every kid needs to feel welcomed at school and celebrated. So what were some things that you did to help promote that idea and live it out? Well, I'm going to sort of start from the top level of what we tried to do and work my way into the classroom. At the highest level, we, and I say we, I mean my assistant principals and I worked as a team on all of these kinds of issues. We wanted every student who came to Los Altos High School to feel as though he or she belonged in that community. And we did everything we could to make sure that the campus was a welcoming place for everyone. And that starts with basic safety, but it also starts with valuing all kids. And I tried to do that on a personal level by meeting kids, by knowing their names. These are typical things that I think high school principals really work toward. But I also tried to find a project for myself every year where I would work with a small number of students. And so, for example, one year, the person who had been running our multicultural week for a long time no longer was doing it. I don't remember why. And there was no faculty member who stepped up to continue the tradition. So I did it. And um, I pulled together a diverse team of students who were interested. And we um, were actually able to do some innovative things beyond food and dancing in order to really think about the multicultural nature of our high school. And So I I worked on projects like that, which got me close to small groups of students with particular interests, but it also conveyed a message to the rest of the student body that I was the kind of person that you could sit down with and talk to as opposed to fear, which is uh, how many, many students see their school administrators. I worked with the faculty on issues of diversity and inclusion. We had some anti-racism workshops back when people weren't calling them that. And we talked as a faculty about how we can uh, make our classrooms more inclusive. Um, To me and to a lot of my teachers, what that meant was creating a sense of community within the classroom. And I worked hard to promote that, naturally with varying success across departments and grade levels. But our greatest success was really with the the ninth grade English program that uh, were all the teachers committed quite vigorously to creating a sense of community in their classrooms to keeping the classrooms heterogeneous and diverse and using that diversity as part of both affective and cognitive learning. So the books that they read in ninth grade and the discussions that they had all centered on issues of community, diversity, and all the issues that sort of bubble around inside communities. So the students were learning how to have a voice and how to work with people who were different from themselves and how to make their own needs and aspirations known. 
Wonderful. Well, I'd like to move us along to you getting connected to Teach FX. And can you bring us to that story? Okay. I hate to uh, always go back far in history, but that's kind of what happens when you're at my stage. The origins of my interest in Teach FX really go back to my dissertation work when I was a graduate student at Stanford. My dissertation was comparison case studies of administrators implementing teacher evaluation processes. And what I was most interested in was how they provided feedback to teachers that was focused on their improvement, which is difficult to manage in an evaluation system because it is, it is an evaluation. And so it makes people nervous and defensive. But that sparked a, a career-long interest in how I might be able to provide feedback to teachers that is specific and actionable enough that they can try new things in the classroom and make improvements toward that help move them toward their instructional goals. I did that for my administrative career, carefully spending lots of time in classrooms for teachers I was evaluating, creating narratives that were as objective um, and comprehensive as I could make them, and then having meaningful conferences where teachers engaged in self-analysis before I imposed my own thoughts on um, what I thought was good and what I thought needed work. I continued some of this interest in my academic career, and it was always it was always kind of there in the background for me. But when I first encountered TeachFX, uh, when Jamie Poskin was a graduate student of mine, he shared with me his idea for turning audio recordings into graphic and numerical representations of the proportions of teacher talk, student talk, silence, and group work. And my eyes just lit up because I said, wow, here is the data collection tool that I wished I'd had instead of my laptop where I'm furiously typing in the back of the classroom and distracting everybody. And so I was really intrigued from the moment he shared his idea. And I could see tremendous potential for this feedback device to be able to give teachers the a kind of mirror of what was going on in their classroom they could reflect on and start to make change. Right. And, and you pointed out, I mean, you can only capture so much. You can try to be as objective as possible. You said it was distracting as you're clacking away at your, your keyboard. And of course, I mean, we want, we want uh, administrators in rooms and, and observing and providing feedback, but are there any other limitations to the principal and the admin team collecting feedback and, and, you know, doing the normal feedback loop with the debrief? Are there any other limitations, you know, to that model? Oh, there are a lot, Um, but I'll just focus on a couple. The biggest limitation is time, that typically my administrative team and I each had uh, 18 to 20 teachers to evaluate every year. And by contract, we had to do a minimum of two observations, whether the teacher was probationary or or tenured. And um, that doesn't sound like a lot, when we're just talking about it, but in the crush of the school day, it's very difficult to make, let's say, 40 observations of at least 50 minutes long and write that all up and have conferences before and after each one of those. It's a very, very significant time burden. And so it's hard to do a good job with a large number of people. And there are a lot of people who never get observed. Um, Before we started the culinary arts program, I had a very fine home economics teacher who worked part-time. And One day, I was determined just to do some drop-ins and visit classes, not for evaluation, just to to kind of visit and see what was going on. I dropped into her class for about 20 minutes and left her a little note card with my reflections. And she came back to my office as soon as she had a break. And she said, that's the first time anybody dropped into my class in 20 years. 
20 years. So, you know, that's an indicator of how little feedback teachers actually get and how little administrators really know about what goes on in classrooms. The other limitation is that when you have, let's say, two observations in an academic year, you're looking at essentially separated one snapshot, you know, single snapshots of the class. That has real benefit, and I used that to the greatest extent that I could, but you don't get a sense of the flow of teaching and learning over time. And so this is where TeachFX is really spectacular because the teacher can record as many times as she wants for as long as she wants. And if she does it consistently, then she'll get a picture of what the student experience looks like with regard to speech patterns over an extended period of time. And further, that can be discussed in really interesting ways with an administrator or a coach or just a, um, a colleague. Right. So there's this limitation of time and what you could really see. You have these two snapshots where, you know, somewhat unrelated, right? But that's the best you can do just because of the, the limitations and constraints of doing in-person feedback. But what I'm hearing you say is if, a, if an educator consistently uses the tool, they have a consistent running record of, of their performance, the student's performance within a class. I would assume that, that that creates some level of ownership, number one, more profound mirror moments and times to say, wow, like this is really what's happening. I, I should take a change. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious how, it, how, how you've seen it help educators shift their practice, right? If they're, if they're getting that consistent feedback and they're owning it, right? then what kind of shifts do you see happen within the class? The very first thing we see is the sort of that encounter with evidence for the first time, because this is evidence that they've never seen before. And the nearly universal reaction is, wow, I never realized I talked so much. <laughs> yeah. Teachers in general underestimate the amount of airtime they take, which is why we have a national average of 70 to 80% teacher talk in classrooms. The next sort of step along the path is I want to make this different. And many teachers can make moves right away that increase their student talk, whether that's in a group or individual or both, you know, between 10 and 15 percentage points. So in lots of cases, they're going from single digits up to maybe 20 to 22% student talk. What's more difficult is making the shift in really utilizing student discourse. And this is what we're really working on right now in our product development at TeachFX, which is how can we show teachers classroom dynamics and also help them along a pathway where they're learning about how to change those dynamics in ways where a lot more learning, a lot more deeper learning is happening through student discourse. So as an example of what I'm talking about, one of the professional learning topics that we're working on right now is something that comes out of research called instructional conversations. Oftentimes, I know this was true of myself as a teacher, uh, both in high school and in graduate settings, oftentimes a discussion is sort of a standalone. Like we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about alienation in Of Mice and Men. And we'll have a, a, we'll have small group discussion, maybe whole group discussion, and that'll go on for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then we'll move on to something else. What we're trying to help teachers see is the potential in having a series of discussions that have very deliberate um, stages and very explicitly build on each other so that you might start from something simple and personal 
to build towards something more conceptual and giving that time and space and new questions that help students in the class come to deeper, more complex meanings for whatever the content might be. Well, thank you for uh, giving some practical examples of the value there. And uh, the ruckus maker listening knows that they can go to teachfx.com forward slash BLBS for a special offer as well. Well, David, I'd love to ask you the last two questions I asked all my guests and to see how you'd uh, respond. So what message would you put on all school marquees across the globe if you could do so for just a day? My marquee statement would be something like, teaching and learning is both affective and cognitive. You're building a school from the ground up. You're not limited by any resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build your dream school and what would be your top three priorities? I would build my dream school, first of all, by looking for and hiring teachers who believed in my marquee statement that teaching and learning is both affective and cognitive. Um, I think at any grade level, but particularly for adolescents, that is vital. Kids absolutely need to know that the people around them, the adults around them, care about them as human beings. And teachers and administrators need to understand that learning is very difficult for a large number of students and in some ways effectively painful. And we need to help them through those challenges by understanding the affective side while we're working on cognitive development. So I want teachers who share that perspective. I would begin with this group of like-minded people um, by exploring ways in which we could turn a school, which can be a very cold place, into a real community, a place where everyone who comes to that place belongs there, teachers, students, um, whatever support staff we have, parents, that this community belongs to all of us. And I think the second big step that I would want to make is that we would ensure that, I'm thinking of a high school now, that we would ensure that when a student enters, that they begin to develop a life plan so that they have something to look forward to, that they have something that they're working toward. Now, that's a little bit tricky because I don't think that the typical 14-year-old is ready to decide what his or her career is going to look like necessarily. And they will have a hard time imagining what it means to enter the world of work beyond low-level jobs that might be available to them as teenagers. And so I think that that's a work in progress through the four years of high school, that you're constantly revisiting that those uh, goals and aspirations and remaking plans. And the third piece that is vital to me is that whatever we're doing in school is about creating opportunities. And I say that in opposition to the sorting that goes on in schools. A lot of times schools close off opportunities. Well, you earned a a C in Algebra 1, so you can't go on to geometry. You need to repeat Algebra 1. Or you maxed out in mathematics before you can actually, when I say maxed out, I should say that you... uh, you took enough mathematics courses to graduate, but you didn't really succeed in any of them. And so you can't really succeed in college, let alone be eligible to apply for college. I think that those kinds of patterns have to end in order for high school to be more uh, meaningful and more successful for more kids. How you do that is not obvious to me, but I would pull on the genius of the teachers around me to um, help us figure that out together. So. 
it's really about community. It's about goals and it's about opportunity. David, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. Of all the things we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? You have to persist in pursuing what's most important to you in the name of quality education for all kids. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.